The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this um, Lord's Day. Thank you for this season of Lent, this uh, time of our spiritual warfare. And Lord, we ask that you would guide us as we talk about um, the doctrine in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so we are in chapter 7 of the books. Chapter 7 of of W.H. Griffith Thomas's Methods of Bible Study. And so that's... um, Old Testament Doctrine, uh, page 65 in your book, page 65. Does anybody need to borrow a copy of the book? You do? Okay, would you, would you pass this? Thank you. All right, so um, I will be working mostly off of my um, uh, electronic ones. So um, I, if you get lost in page numbers... Um, ask your neighbor. <laughs> or, or yell at Lily all the way up front here. So. Either, either one we can do. Okay, so, oh, excuse me. We began talking about this chapter um, uh, two weeks ago, because I was not here last week. I was, I was out of town. Two weeks ago, and we, um, I'm going to basically roll us back to the beginning of the chapter um, and revisit some of the stuff we did talk about, because it was a little bit shooting of the hip two weeks ago. Um, not completely, but a little bit. Um, and before we get into this, you're going you're gonna to run across a term that um, Griffith Thomas uses when he talks about the different dispensations in the Old Testament. Um, so, uh, to, to show... The cards, uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas was, a di- what was part of the school of thought that we call dispensationalism. Um, I am not a dispensationalist. Um, I, I, I'm not a big fan in general of dispensationalism uh, for various reasons, and we'll get into that. And we'll talk about how Griffith Thomas doesn't fall into the category of stuff I don't particularly care, about, care for, for it. So. Um, Dispensationalism in, in kind of in really broad generic terms, broad general terms, is this idea that at different periods of history, God dealt with his people in a different in different ways. And I think we can agree that's not unreasonable. And he had different expectations of his people based on those different ways he was dealing with them. Um, again, I don't necessarily have an issue with that. Uh, you do see you do see kind of shadows of this type of thinking um, among some of the, the Jewish communities that were in the Dead Sea. So you do see some evidence of this in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm told. I don't know the details of those texts. I'm not by any stretch of a means a expert on um, Second Temple Dead Sea Scroll literature. Um, it's interesting stuff, but that is, that is by no means my area of expertise. And um, the, so in of itself, those, those core ideas I don't necessarily have, have, have issues with. What does happen sometimes in dispensationalism, especially as you see it today, is some of those conclusions based on that premise get a little, in my mind, a little weird. So um, your, your more popular level expressions of this theology, you're going to find in your left behind books. Um, if you're a little bit older, the late great planet Earth. Um, yeah, I, I, we, we, can, we can see the, uh, the generations based on what, what, what you're chuckling at, what you're smiling at. Um, you know, that, that, sort of, that sort of idea. So there's, and, 
And some of, the, some of the key functions of that very common version of dispensationalism in American evangelicalism, and it is kind of unique to American evangelicalism, to be perfectly honest. It's not, you don't see this as much in other countries, their dispensationalism, but it's very popular in American dispensationalism. And so some, here's some of the stuff that, they tend to, they, that tends to be core issues. Um, this assumption that in the Old Testament... God's, God's standard for salvation was obedience. You know, he gave the law, and so, so, so in the period of the law, to be saved, you had to keep the law. And so that's what's different about the new covenant, is that now to be saved, it's about grace, not about keeping the law. But when we read the new covenant scriptures, the conclusion you should reach is, it was really always about God's grace. You know, look, look at Romans 4, right? Um, the other thing that tends to be very common, especially in American dispensationalism, is this radical distinction between Israel and the church. So um, the church is not Israel. The church does not fulfill Israel. Israel says nothing to the church. They are completely two separate groups of God's people. And right now we're in the church age when for the sake of saving some of us Gentiles, God has taken a detour in his big plan, but his big plan is really the story of Israel. And after the, the rapture, when God takes all the church away, um, then it's going to go back to being the story about Israel. And so um, when we look at some of those promises about the, the, um, the, uh, the kingdom of God, um, they, they tend to very literalistically view their, their, their fulfillment in Israel. So, th so there would be this, this assumption that the modern nation of Israel is a fulfillment, at least in part, of those prophecies. And that may be true, that may be not, but, I think that, but, but you are not allowed to question that assumption in a lot of American dispensationalism. So th those are some of the big issues. Uh, Dial. Yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the rapture. Right. I do not find Casey talks about, you know, two people are standing, one of them goes away. Okay, yeah. Um, so the questions about the rapture, that's that's a bit beyond what I'd like to talk about today, but we but we I do want to talk about it um, in, in some future weeks. Suffice it to say that there are some there are some passages that talk about something like that. But exactly what that looks like is a lot less clear than you're going to see in those circles. Well, one, of the, one of the things that, that I was reading Um, yeah, so there's, there's some passages, there's, there's, there are some passages that address something like that, um, some passages from Thessalonians, some passages, but it's mostly stuff from Thessalonians, and then some hints in the Gospels where, where folks tend to hang their hat on that. The word itself comes from a, see if I'm trying to remember this properly, I believe it's a, an English adaptation of a Latin 
word that's translated from Thessalonians, from the Greek into Thessalonians. So the Greek in Thessalonians into the Latin, into English, I believe is where the, the word comes. You are not going to find the word in your English Bibles. Um, and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with titles coming from that because we, we do owe so much to Latin as, as Western people, period. Um, once upon a time, every academic discourse was done in Latin. If you were educated, you knew Latin. You did your, your scholarship in Latin. Um, you might have done business in English, but you were going to... You know, the, our 39 articles of religion were published in Latin and in English at the same time because if it was going to be read outside of the popular level, it had to also be in Latin. And we can actually learn a lot about the English interpretation of the articles by looking at the Latin. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. But you're not going to find that, that term in your, in your English Bible. But yeah, let's, let's, put, let's put a bookmark on that. Um, yeah, because that, that really is beyond what we want to talk about today. Um, so yeah, that, that's, those, those are some of the reasons why I, I don't really um, hold to the dispensational theology as we see it in American evangelicalism. I know some people that I, that I respect very deeply who are dispensationalists. Dallas Theological Seminary was kind of the, 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 the mecca of dispensationalism for a very long time. My understanding is DTS is not quite as dynamic or dogmatic about some of that as they used to be. They still are dispensationalists, but not they're, they're, not, they're not engaging in some of the wacky stuff you do see on the popular, popular level. Griffith Thomas was, and this is not well known, he was one of the co-founders of DTS. Um, but his, 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 his version of dispensationalism is, is pretty moderate. You're not going to see some of the crazy things in, in any of his thoughts, in any of his writings that you would see in a Tim LaHaye um, discussion, um, for example, or, you, you, or the, the type of stuff you might see on TBN um, or, or from John Hagee. You know, that you're not going to ever see that kind of thing from Griffith Thomas. He was very moderate. And he's the same way, by the way, with his Calvinism. His Calvinism, he's, he's, he's staunchly a Calvinist, but his Calvinism does not look like anything you'd see in a typical Presbyterian church. Um, it's, it's a very moderate, mild version of both of those things, which is, which is why... Um, I, I do think his writings on that, on those issues, are are beneficial. So, all that to say, let's get into into the Old Testament doctrine. We've spent our, <laughs> a third of our class already. Um, so, uh, chapter seven, he says here we're gonna, we're going to we're going to skip the the the, the um, introductory paragraph, um, but we're going to get to the next the next subheading: progressiveness of revelation. So um, he says, God revealed himself not only at sundry times, but also in diverse manners to the fathers, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. That's how he begins it. And so he, he says that this idea of progressive revelation is a key to understanding the Old Testament. Um, the theology and doctrine of the Old Testament is kind of unveiled in stages, is what he's getting at. Um, and so he says, a knowledge of this principle of progress in God's revelation of himself enables us to avoid a twofold error. It prevents us on the one hand from undervaluing the Old Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, by reason of our fuller light from the New Testament. 
And so we're not putting away the Old Testament because we know better now in the New Testament. Number two, on the other hand, it prevents us from using the Old Testament in any of its stages without guidance from the complete revelation in Christ. So we don't... Um, we, we have to use the New Testament, New Testament eyes when we are looking at the Old Testament. But that doesn't let us chunk out the Old Testament because we have New Testament eyes. That's what he's saying. And, and this idea, where dispensationalists differ from, it, it, from a lot of other folks, um, say your, your more Reformed Covenant theologians, for example, is they do believe that the Old Testament had progressive revelation, not just a progress from old into new. And I do think that's an area where old school dispensationalism, like what we see with Griffith Thomas, has a point. We do see progressive revelation in the Old Testament as well. So so we talked about two weeks ago how um, this idea of progressive revelation will help us when we're dealing with some of those more difficult passages, such as the annihilation of the, or the commanded annihilation of the Canaanites. You know, was that genocide as we would see it today? The answer is no. And um, also, by the way, that doesn't give us excuse for, you know, we don't have New Testament holy war, right? We do not have a New Testament jihad. It doesn't work that way. Um, but we do see that holy war in that particular stage of the Old Testament revelation for a particular purpose. Um, we can, and what ends up happening is when we see things like that, we do see some ways that we can apply things. Like I do think that we, we see that we, we can't draw a New Testament complete pacifism um, because we do have that revelation from the Old Testament that informs things. You know, so the idea that war is always evil is not necessarily a New Testament concept. You know, we, I, I do think that just war is, is, a, is a New Testament concept. But we don't see holy war, you know, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, someone, and this might have come up two weeks ago. Um, oh, my dad, actually, we were, we, were, we were kind of talking about this when I was visiting my dad. I was talking about this class. And, um, and yeah, he said, you know, one of the things we learned in the military, he was in the Navy for 23 years, is that you don't, the purpose of war is not destroying your enemy. The purpose of war is for your enemy to stop fighting. Um, you know, that's, that's part of just war. It's not for the sake of destroying your enemy. It's to get your enemy to stop doing the bad things that they're doing. Assuming your enemy is doing those bad things. Because if they're not doing bad things, maybe your war's not so just, right? Um, okay. So that, that's an example we have. Um, then let, let's skip down here. He says, we have thus to distinguish carefully between what is called dispensational truth and permanent truth in the Old Testament. That is between those elements of God's revelation intended solely for the immediate need and those which are of eternal validity. To put it in another, yet another way, we have to remembrance, we have to remember the difference between what is written to us and for us. All scripture was written for our learning, but not all was written to us directly. And this is where I completely agree with him. This is, this is, this is a very good point that we can get from, from dispensational thought. Not all scripture is written to you, but it is all written for you. Um, so when we're reading the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, the wrong question is, what does this say to me? That is not the right question to start with. 
Yeah, do not. <laughs> we, <laughs> the lady's very happy with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that, that is totally the wrong way of looking at Scripture. Because what ends up happening is you are going to twist Scripture to meet your immediate needs. Or desires. Or desires. Yeah, that's, that's probably a better way. Yes, thank you. Um, and there is a term for that. It's eisegesis, reading into the Scripture as opposed to exegesis, reading out of the scripture. We're letting us change the scripture rather than letting scripture change us. So don't do that. However, an appropriate question after we do say, okay, what, what does this passage, the, one of the first questions we should ask is, what does this scripture say to its audience, to the person for whom it was written? A, a, a reasonable follow-up question is, in light of that, how does it apply to me? So you can find application, you should find application, um, even when it's not directly to you. That said, the application for you should not be the first question either, or even the second question. Because before that, you should ask, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about God, Right? Because because it's not about you. Even when it applies to you, it's not about you. Jesus told us the scriptures about him. And we'll talk about that in chapter 8. Okay. Um, so he says, Much of it addressed to Jews was primarily and often exclusively to them and is only for us today by way of application. And here's one of those areas where I would caution. Um, because I, there, there is a sense where the church is Israel. Not as replaces Israel, but the concept of Israel is widened, is widened to include those who follow, who, who, who follow the Messiah. And in fact, that becomes the true Israel is those who follow Israel's Messiah. Because if you do not follow Israel's Messiah, you are ultimately not following Israel's God. And so you don't follow Israel's king, you don't follow Israel's God, can you really be Israel? You find yourself, as the Old Testament says, cut off from your people. So again, that's not the church replaces Israel, but that the church is included in Israel. And sadly, by unbelief, some who are ethnic Israel are cut off from Israel in that truer, more spiritual sense. Not forever. They, you know, there's, there is always hope for all people. Um, you know, which is what Paul talks about in various places. Um, and this also will have good, um, good application as we, uh, we, we're going to be having the dude from Chosen People Ministries doing that Passover demonstration. Keep these things in mind when, when we do that. Okay, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's, he says, to give one example out of many, the first commandment is of permanent and eternal value and force, but the introductory words giving the motive for it um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You, should, you, know, you shall have no other gods but me, right? Um, are no longer applicable to us except by means of a process of spiritualizing. Well, what we are told in the New Testament is that the, the physical Egypt points to a more true, a truer spiritual slavery to sin. And so when we see, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the Christians should say, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from, from slavery and sin, into sin, right? Okay. Ten minutes. Let's see if we can finish the chapter. <laughs> 
Okay, so we're going to look at some of the main elements of the doctrine of the Old Testament. First of all, we have the doctrine of God. This is what we would call theology in its most proper sense, the doctrine of God. He says, take first the, the book of Genesis and consider the fund, its fundamental ideas of God as creator. Um, first chapter, right? As lawgiver, all the way back in that second chapter, third chapter. As judge, first three chapters, he's judging. As a provider or ruler, who made the garden, right? Um, as a redeemer, who promises in Genesis 3 that he's going to take care of this new problem of sin, right? Notice how these come out of the early chapters. In them we have the germ of all that follows, and everything else up to Malachi may be included in these ideas. I think that's really cool. Um, next paragraph, he says, in this connection of a st- in this connection. A study of the names of God and titles of God is of great importance because as he's going to, he kind of lists some of these, these names, um, God, which is Elohim, um, Jehovah or Yahweh, um, that, that, that more personal name, God Almighty, which is a translation of El Shaddai, everlasting God, um, the various titles associated with Yahweh or Jehovah, um, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, etc. Um, what ends up happening is all of these various names show aspects of God's character. What's Jehovah Jireh? That's the Lord who provides. You know, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Rophe, the Lord who is our healer. And as you study these names of God, um, it helps to flesh out the Old Testament doctrine of God. I think these are that's that is a really good point. Look at those studies. You got to know a little bit of Hebrew, but you know what? Your study Bible helps you with that. You're the, even the little footnotes in your non-study Bible will help you with that. I mean, that's, that sort of thing is readily available. If you ever come across one where it's just totally confusing, um, come ask me. And if, if I don't have an answer, I can point you to a source that will. So, um, yeah. Um, and so he says, look again at Genesis and see there is a summary of the whole Bible. Oh, doctrine of man. Sorry, we're skipping to the next doctrine. Doctrine of man. Um, we would call this biblical anthropology, the study of man. Um, look again at Genesis and see there is a summary of the whole Bible concerning man. His glory in creation, right? Um, he's made in the image and likeness of God, as we talked about uh, on Wednesday. Um, his humiliation through sin, his need of redemption, his longings for God, even when he doesn't realize it. Um, his endeavors after righteousness. And uh, you can trace all of these through the Old Testament, and they're just illustration after illustration after illustration. He gives the example regarding the longings for God, uh, what you read in Job and in the Psalms, especially like John, um, yes, um, all over the Psalms. And then under his um, endeavors after righteousness, you see the sacrifices um, from the very beginning. But you also see in the Psalms, like 50 and 51, and in Micah um, chapter 5, which you just read last week, if you're following along with our full year lectionary for evening prayer, um, that this true idea of sacrifice was this thing we say in Lent all the time. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a humble and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not de- despise. You know, do, do, do I want bulls and rams and goats? Not really. <laughs> You know, that's just to point you to the more true sacrifice. So he says at the end of this section, study well the Old Testament picture of man, and from it will come a deeper realization of what grace, 
must and can do for him. And this is, this is where I say that, you know, this is showing how, how Griffith Thomas, in his dispensationalism, is a mild and um, agreeable dispensationalist. Um, you know, he's not, you know, because, I mean, he's, he's, he's showing how these things bleed together anyway. He's not making this radical distinction that you see in some of our American contemporary circles, um, some of the more, more crazy end of things. Okay, uh, the doctrine of religion, or pro- we might say worship, is probably another way we, we might put that today. Um, this will show the divine dealings with man and how the doctrine concerning God comes in contact with the life of man. We find religion in the Old Testament under three successive and yet coexistent forms. That's a cool way he puts it. They're successive, it means that they do follow after each other, but they are coexistent, and we'll talk about how that is. So first of all, we have the theocracy or the direct government of God from creation to Samuel. There is no king because God's your king. You know, that's what a theocracy is proper, by the way. Um, sometimes you hear people talk about theocracy being where um, you're mixing church and state. That's not really theocracy. Um, as a matter of fact, that separation that we see is very modern. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's interesting in the um, 17th century when the monarchy was restored to England, there were hymns being written about um, how the angels are smiling because things are now in, on earth how they are in heaven. <laughs> you know, there's a king there and there's a king here, you know. <laughs> it's, it, you know that, that mixing is, is a lot more natural, I think. Um, so I, I, I could be a monarchist if I weren't an American. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, but we do have the, you know, the, so the theocracy is actually the government of God, not, not, you know, not that mixing of church and state, but it's the government of God where God runs the show. Um, and, and that's from creation to Samuel. Number two, the monarchy or divine government through the kings. That's important. You know, God did promise during that the, theocratic um, period um, in Deuteronomy, God promises you're going to have a king. And this is how the king needs to do things if, if, if he's going to be in line with my will. You know, God is still ruling them through the king, which is why those hymns were written after the restoration of the monarchy in England. Um, the hierarchy or divine government through priests and prophets, and that's the captivity, the period of the captivity and restoration. Um, and what, what's, why, why is that being done at that point? Well, that's because there are, the kings are gone at that point. You still do have the heir to the throne. You do know who is in the line of David, but he's not on the throne. There is no throne at that point. Um, recently, one of the, um, the uh, three uh, surviving heirs to the French throne just recently died. And, um, there's there, and basically you've got these three competing uh, people who claim that they are the heir to the French. There has been no king in France for you know, 150, 200 years. <laughs> but, but these guys, are, you know, I, I am the true and rightful king kind of thing. Um, that's kind of how it was in, in during the period of the hierarchy. Um, and he says, we have said successive yet coexistent because the second, uh, in the second as well as in the third period, the prophets and priests were influential as media of divine revelation, even though they were not actually the direct authority over the people. Um, so yeah, in, in the period of the monarchy, the prophets play a very important role. They speak for God. They even speak to the king. 
Um, remember uh, the, the occasion for Psalm 51 being written when Nathan went to David and said, you are the man who, you know, who sinned, not you the man, but you, know, you are the man. <laughs> I, I so can't resist doing that. I should stop. <laughs> Such a terrible joke. I mean, you know, the 1990s called and want their joke back. Um, which I think is also a 90s joke. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> and in the period of the hierarchy, um, the priests, um, you do some, from time to time see a priest who's kind of running, is in charge, like Ezra is a priest, and he seems to be running things. Um, he does have a period, an official authority during his time. But it's not always that case. Um, they, they, so the priests and the prophets do... Um, always exercise a moral authority, even if not necessarily an official authority, um, throughout all three periods. <clears throat> and you do see the, the heirs of the kings are still around during the hierarchy. Um, you know, Zerubbabel and whatnot in the book of Zechariah, for example. Okay, in the whole course of these three forms, there seems to be one main principle, education. God's people were being trained and led upwards and onward from a religion of outward restraint to a religion of inward constraint, from a system of outward precepts to a system of inward principles. It's not, we're going from it being all about the rules to what we would say call today ethical monotheism. And that's where we get in this psalm, which is, of course, written during the period of monarchy. Um, you know, the sacrifices of God are a broken, are, are a broken spirit. Um, that's the true sacrifice. That's the true, true, true word. So um, we could see the Old Testament as kind of mankind in his uh, childhood as he's growing up at different places. And we do the same thing with children, right? We're a lot more rules-heavy when they're little. We, you know, it's, there's a lot more because I said so. You can't reason with a three- or four-year-old. I say that from the, from the book we're in currently writing. I mean, I mean, it's, it, but I mean, I mean seriously, it's, it's, not, it's not good for either them or for you to try to reason with them because they, they're not, the, developmentally, they can't reason. I mean, you can, you can, so what do you do with a little kid? You have this choice, you have that choice. You give them acceptable choices. Or if they're refusing the acceptable choices, here's going to be the consequence if you don't take this choice. And then they have to suffer. Then you follow through with the consequence. You know, and that's the kind of thing where you know, we, we see that development in the Old Testament. It's mankind in his childhood. Um, you know, as, as St. As Paul says, it's mankind under governors until the time appointed by the Father. You know, under, under the tutors. Um, it's the world's moral childhood. Um, and so you do have gradual progress through the Old Testament, um, you know, growing um, from that outward focus into the inward focus, superior, superiority of the spirit to the, leather, to the letter, rather, and the gradual progress and development of religion leading up to worship in spirit and truth that we see in the, in the, in the New Testament. And part of the problem with, with, with when so much of the Jewish people reject the Messiah in the gospel, and then as that develops in, in Judaism, is there is, in some sense, a rejection of growing up morally. Um, a, a family member who, um, who is Jewish had once told me, we do not, and, you know, and it practices kind of uh, somewhat orthodox Judaism, 
once told me, we do not have spirit of the law in Judaism. There is only the letter of the law. And you know what? The fruit of that's not so good. And, and, and I think if you do talk to some of the more thoughtful luminaries within Judaism, someone like the late Rabbi Schneerson, he might say, no, I think there is a spirit too. You know, they realize that's something that needs to be done. Now, now may, that, may that lead to a, to a recognition of the Messiah. Okay, we are at 11 o'clock. We, we are done with this chapter, um, and we will pick up with chapter 8 next week. Um, if there are any questions on this, we can roll them into next week, because next week is Christ in the Old Testament, a part of Old Testament doctrine, which really gets its own chapter. So we can continue talking about Old Testament doctrine in that. So um, write your question down, and, uh, and if, you need to, if you can't remember it, or just remember it. And I will see you all in Mass or uh, on Wednesday for, for catechesis or next week. God bless.